0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications for Goldman Sachs. And today, we're taping from our annual Builders and Innovators Summit. Each year, we gather some of the most exciting entrepreneurs for a week of learning, idea sharing, and networking. Typically, we'd be in beautiful Santa Barbara, but this year, we're hosting the summit virtually. But we're delighted to be joined by two entrepreneurs to talk through their founder journeys, how they're adapting through an unexpected year to say the least, and what they're most optimistic about as we think about the future. We have Irving Fain, co-founder and CEO of Bowery Farming, which is a modern farming company and a veteran of the Builders and Innovators Conference, and Sheila Gujarati, co-founder and CEO of Gossamer Bio, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company. We're also joined by Kim Posnett, Global Co-Head of Investment Banking Services here at Goldman Sachs, who will share her perspective on the state of entrepreneurship more broadly. Kim, Irving, and Sheila, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, Thank you. So before we dive in, let's just do introductions. Let's hear
2: the elevator pitch of Bowery Farming and Gossamer Bio. Irving, I'll start with you. Thanks so much. And and so you said modern farming companies. So what, what does that mean? So at Bowery, we build smart indoor farms that we locate close to the cities that we serve. So these are large warehouse scale farms where we grow our crops and we stack them from the floor all the way to the ceiling. And they grow under lights that mimic the spectrum of the sun. And because of the way that we can grow, we grow 365 days of the year. We are completely pesticide free over a hundred times plus more productive than a square foot of farmland. And we only use a fraction of the water compared to traditional agriculture. Excellent. Sheila, your turn.
3: Great. Yeah. So Gossamer Bio is a clinical stage biotech company where we're really focused on developing novel therapeutics in these areas of immunology, inflammation, and oncology. And I like to think of us as a disruptive research and development engine where we have an incredible team who has years of experience in industry. And what we're trying to do is bring the best of biopharma together. So the best of biotech, where you're nimble, entrepreneurial, everyday counts. you have a sense of urgency with really the best of pharma, where you have that high quality, excellence in drug development. And We actually have a whole portfolio that we started with from the very beginning versus really one asset. So it's, we have a, a really great research and clinical portfolio.
0: So Sheila, explain why you started Gassmer Bio and What problem specifically were you trying to solve? And why did you think you were the right person to do that?
3: Yes, great question. So I started Gossamer Bio. It's really the company of my dreams in terms of really just bringing together the totality of my experience that I've had. I've worked at large companies, such as Genentech and Bristol-Myers Squibb, where I was a therapeutic head and leader for immunology. And then I was working at a small company, Receptos, where I was a chief medical officer, which we sold to Celgene in 2015 for about $7.2 billion at the time. So just a great exit. And I had all this experience that I had developed throughout my career and very grateful to have had those experiences. And I had a terrific team, again, a team of industry veterans, but they also had that biotech spirit. And it's really hard to find individuals who actually thread that needle. And so I thought what I'd do is really create a next-generation biotech company and really building upon all the experience I have, bring together a stellar team, add to that team with the right people with that type of translational mindset, and do, again, take risks and do really novel immunology development. And that's our core translational immunology. So I thought I would be a, a good person to lead this effort. I'm also really so supportive of a very strong, thriving culture. So I believe that really drives performance. And doing that in a small environment, you can unleash so much value that, you know, sometimes gets a little bit lost in the bigger pharma companies. So I thought this is essentially a new way to move forward within biopharma, and I wanted to do that.
0: I love that. Company of your dreams. We'll get back to a little bit more about questions
2: on culture in a little bit. Irving, what's the story that led you to start Bowery? Yeah. So I have been an entrepreneur since I was a very young kid. I was up to every little hustle you could imagine when I was growing up. And I would drag my younger brother behind me, uh, whether it was my snow shoveling business or our leaf raking business or, or whatever else we could figure out how to start. Certainly a, a different journey than Valerie, but I, this is always the seat I knew I wanted to sit in, maybe not as a farmer per se, but certainly as an entrepreneur. And I kind of been in technology and the innovation economy for almost 20 years now. And then started out actually as a part of a small team figuring out digital for Clear Channel, which is the largest radio company in the world. And was part of the team that built iHeartRadio and rolled that out, which was just an incredible experience. And ultimately decided to leave and start something of my own. And I went and built an enterprise software business in New York, a company called CrowdTwist, which we ultimately sold Oracle. And when I started to think about what I wanted to do next, what I really, really cared about was a working on something that I had an enormous passion for, but b working on a problem that I thought mattered to larger society as a whole. And I really wanted to work on something that I thought could make a broader impact, and I've been a believer since I was a young kid that technology and the innovation economy can be used to solve hard and important problems. And when you look at agriculture, it is is in fact at the nexus of many of the global challenges that we face today. 70% of the world's water every year goes to agriculture. We put down about six billion pounds of pesticides annually across the world. And what that's caused is over the last 40 years, we've actually lost 30 percent of all of our arable farmland. And so you have a system that's already stretching and straining. And then you look at what's happening to the world around us. There's going to be nine to 10 billion people on the planet in the next 30 years. The U.N. will tell you we need somewhere between 50 to 70 percent more food to feed that population. And all the while, 70 to 80% of people are going to be living in and around cities in this next 30 year period. And so I got really obsessed with this question of how do you provide fresh food to urban environments and how do you do it in a way that's both more efficient and more sustainable? And that's really what drove me to found and create Bowery. And it's really based upon a technological foundation as well.
0: So, in both your companies, it strikes me that a lot of Americans, a lot of people around the world didn't think much about these kinds of issues until recently. But Sheila, now everyone in America because of COVID is thinking about drug development and kind of the technology behind pharmaceuticals. Talk a little bit about the landscape today as someone who really knows it well and isn't an armchair expert. What's it like to try to carve out a niche and gain traction what's a super crowded industry today?
3: It is challenging. First of all, we're in an unprecedented time. In terms of the innovation that we're seeing with the new tools and resources we have around genetics, what is capable in terms of the new insights we're getting and the type of drug development that we want to pursue. So it's so exciting to be in this field. I've never seen the rate of which the new discoveries are being made. I've never seen this type of energy, and sometimes frenzy, because there's a lot of different programs we can work on. So it is an unprecedented time. The other challenge though with biotech and pharma is that the programs we work on typically are very resource intensive. It just takes a lot of capital to be able to run the trials that we need to run. There's obviously a lot of risk in terms of, you know, whether the mechanism is going to play out in the patients that you think and hope for in terms of really achieving clinical benefit. So to do that as a small company in disease areas where there could be a lot of competition is always a challenging and, a, and sometimes a, a really a daunting task for a small biotech to pursue. So it's something that you have to be very focused on. You have to have a lot of expertise and know what you're doing because you really can't afford any missteps as a small company. Whereas sometimes with bigger companies and biopharma companies, you have a lot of resources and you can have a multiple shots at a program. With biotech, you have to really get it right the first time out of the gate, which is another level of pressure. You do see a lot of smaller biotech companies going after rare, ultra-orphan type of disease areas or going after areas where which are not being pursued with larger companies um, and doing incredibly important development work. At Gossamer Bio, we like to address disease areas that actually big pharma companies are in, and we're competing sometimes directly against them. But we, again, understand the science and we know how to execute and get clinical trials done in a nimble fashion. So that's what we're doing, but it can be a really competitive environment. So we just have to be that much more on our game all the time.
0: Kim, you've worked with entrepreneurs throughout your career. How would you describe the atmosphere amongst the entrepreneurial community today? It's obviously a challenging year in many respects, but what are you hearing from startups in terms of how they're meeting those challenges and continuing to innovate?
1: First of all, I want to congratulate both of you, Irving and Sheila, on your unbelievable success. I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking with both of you. But Jake, you know, to answer your question, you know, it's mixed. COVID impacted early stage businesses in very different ways. In some cases, entrepreneurs suddenly found themselves facing prolonged zero revenue environments. In other cases, COVID massively accelerated adoption of their product or technology or sector. You know, I I will say that the common thread amongst my clients who are, you know, founders and entrepreneurs, and that's whether they're running a business that was a COVID beneficiary or not, is incredible resilience, conviction, and innovation you know, a lot of entrepreneurs were looking into a black abyss back in March and April, and, you know, they've persevered. Entrepreneurs have this unbelievable ability, as you all know, to sort of adjust when the ground shifts beneath them. And I think this year has been remarkable to see the entrepreneurs, you know, pivot to the new world we live in.
0: Yeah. I was talking to an entrepreneur in London who has a business that was bound to be very successful in the long run during COVID, but that first couple months was just Brutal, even for a company that was in the right space at the right time. So Sheila and Irving, talk a little bit about the impact of COVID on your businesses and whether you've had to pivot a lot. Let's start with Sheila.
3: So I had no idea I'd be navigating through the COVID pandemic. And there have been many areas in which it's impacted our business. The first most critical area is our ability to conduct clinical trials. So as you can imagine, this is our business. We go globally to run clinical trials. Sometimes I'm in 13, 15, 20 countries all over the world, working with sites and hospitals and clinics to try to get patients enrolled into our studies. And when COVID came about, a lot of these centers and sites and hospitals just shut down, and appropriately so, because they really had to manage the risk. One area that we're doing great development work in is pulmonary arterial hypertension. And these patients really have a lot of challenge because they tend to go into right heart failure. So they're managed by critical care doctors, intensivists, cardiologists, all the same clinicians were actually treating COVID patients now, and, uh, and they themselves are very fragile. So they really couldn't afford to have any risk because of their higher morbidity and mortality rates and their risk. So, for example, that clinical trial that we were running just shut down and we had to suspend enrollment, even though these patients are in dire need of new therapies. So that's a really big area in terms of understanding how to navigate through this, how to work with the sites these clinicians who are so stressed and overworked, how to make sure that we can enroll patients safely. We've even started shipping drugs directly to patients' homes that really grant remote lab services for patients to be able to get their assessments done so we can make sure that we're ensuring safety and doing the clinical assessments for benefit in the clinical trial. So that's one big area. And we've really been navigating through that. We've learned a lot. We've, We've had to pivot. We've had to become more nimble and understand how to conduct trials in this age of Covid, where we may have to do more virtual site monitoring visits, things of that nature. So that's one big area. The second is that we tend to be, even though uh, we work globally, we tend to really thrive in multifunctional, cross-functional collaboration teams because there's so many areas of expertise that you need in biotech to basically bring a drug forward. I always say it takes a village to really bring a new medicine forward for patients internally in your company and then externally working with contract vendors, contract research organizations, and of course, all the patients, the sites, the clinicians, the nurses that we work with. So we really feed off that energy. We have a lot of team meetings and we like to be co-localized, and that has really gone away because we've had to work virtually. So how do we continue to have that energy and that dialogue that we need to have in that virtual environment where we're all working on Zoom all day long and that Zoom fatigue that occurs during the course of the day? So We've really had to manage that and understand how do we continue to have the great dialogue we need to have as a cross-functional team and still maintain people's energy level and have that thriving culture and make sure that we don't miss a beat you know which has been challenging to do but we, we it's amazing how resilient the organization is how we've been able to pivot how we've actually been more productive in this time of covid in terms of internal team driving and just waiting work with these sites as they get up and running and i think it's just been very exciting but a lot of learning
0: so irving obviously in the early days of the pandemic in new york and other other places people literally wondering how do i get food and here you are in the city growing food that people want what happened to your business in that period
2: Yeah, you you're exactly right. And I, I think that what, what's been interesting for us is the value proposition at Bowery and, and what our focus is today hasn't changed, you know, in the five years that I've been building the company. But what has happened is that COVID and the pandemic really Heighten people's awareness quickly around the fragility of our fresh food supply chain or our food supply chain in general. I think people, you know, in this country particularly have sort of taken for granted the ability to walk into a grocery store and pull off the shelf anything you want at any time. And then we all know that a lot of machination behind the scenes goes on to allow that to be possible. And what we are really able to provide at Bowery fundamentally is surety of supply year round, a simpler supply chain overall, and a much safer product in general. And that has mattered long before COVID. And we were experiencing tremendous growth before COVID, but certainly the pandemic has acted as a major accelerant. And so we're actually, we're, we're incredibly proud now to be the largest indoor vertical farming company in the country. And we've seen over 600% growth this year. So we started the year in under stores. And now we're in over 680 stores. And again, of course, that the pandemic is an accelerant. It's not the, the, the reason alone for that growth. And we've really seen consumers and retailers look more and more for safety in the products that they have and looking for that surety of supply And I think that is something that we're gonna see continue moving forward. People are gonna be asking the question more and more about how safe their supply chain is, how reliable is that supply chain. And I think particularly around food, we are so reliant on other countries and other regions of this country to get what we need. And over the last decade or so, and certainly in the last five years, COVID is a major disruption, but by no means is it the only disruption we've experienced. There's been more food safety incidences in 2018 than there were in the prior decade. And so things are accelerating in general in these areas. And we do need to think about how are we going to change the food system. Yeah, and everyone's looking for
0: tightening up their supply chain if they can. You're a great solution to that. Kim, we talked about technology, of course, when we talk about startups, but talk a little bit Are we seeing a trend of businesses across all industries calling themselves tech companies or just using technology as a sort of vehicle to help them execute their visions and sort of distinguish themselves from the competition?
1: That's a great question. And I think, Jake, you know my view on this. I have a pretty strong view. I think technology is critical to the future in every respect. The truly great companies will have the best people, the best culture, and the best technology. And we won't be able to draw those distinctions about who's a tech company or not as easily. Is Tesla an auto company or is it a tech company? It's both. Is Netflix a media company or a tech company? It's both. Is Amazon a consumer retail company or a tech company? It's both. Goldman Sachs. It's definitely an investment bank, but we wouldn't be what we are today without people, culture, and technology. And I think what I'm trying to say is that I don't think any company will win, regardless of the sector they're in without meaningfully leveraging technology going forward,
0: period. So Sheila, I mean, obviously you're in a biotech company. Technology innovation is absolutely core to what you do. What does that look like actually in practice at Gossamer?
3: Right, And Kim, I love what you said. People, culture, and technology. I think that's so right. It's not only what we do, it's how we do it. And it drives performance, it drives sustainability. And especially in this war for talent, that we're having in the virtual pandemic, it's something that's even more critical. So I, I really love that summary, that was great. And to your point on the technology side, it is critical. And it's, again, as I mentioned, this unprecedented time with all the novel insights we're getting from the genetics that we're learning really from patients themselves, and all the insights we're getting, the the, the type of preclinical work we can do even before we get into clinic where we connect with organoids and actually you know, develop cell systems to be able to test our mechanisms that could predict what's going to be happening in patients. So there is so much new technology. Some of it is quite expensive. Some of it, you know, the question is, can you get access to it? And some of it is really, you can be very smart about how you work with real experts in the field, with the academic research institutions or other companies that are developing technologies in a certain area. So at Gossamer, what we try to do is employ as much as we can and really, the thesis for Gossamer, and sometimes say, well, what's your secret sauce in terms of how you push drug development? And for us, we're a very, really translational company. And we have to have that integration between research, the translational scientists who bridge between research and the clinical setting, looking at biomarkers, the genetics, all the different insights we're getting on the mechanism from the clinical trials, as well as the clinical drug developers who know these patients and who can sign the clinical trials. And so what we are doing is we're working with a number of different experts in the field and every disease area we're in, and we're trying to always push the boundary on those novel insights. So that even when we go into the clinic, we don't start our research work. I like to say, it's not really research and development, it's the programs we work on. So let's continue to drive insights by doing the preclinical experiments, by doing the translational work. And we're even working with specialized biomarker companies on our different programs in different disease areas to learn as much as we can, which continues to understand how we refine the patients that we're selecting for our clinical trials, how we're getting novel insights and how we're going to do develop the next set of therapies, the next generation of therapies based on the current programs we have. So that's really what we focus on is that translational science.
2: I wanted just to add something to like, what Kim had said before, which I thought was a really important point and it, it resonated with me because of Bowery, We at Bowery have really believed technology and innovation can solve hard and important problems. And so the way we build our farms and what makes what we do possible is a combination of robotics and automation, which we develop and create for our growing systems and the processing overall, but also what we call the Bowery operating system, which is like the brains of our farm. And it combines software artificial intelligence, computer vision to monitor and maintain our crops in real time and ensure they're getting exactly what they need when they need it. And it it makes the whole system highly scalable because in essence, we're building a distributed network of farms and every new farm that comes online has the benefit of the network before it. And then that farm too strengthens that network. All that said, and we talk about this a lot, we can have the most amazing technology in the world if the food that we grow doesn't taste incredible. It doesn't matter because you bring it home to your family, you eat it yourself, your kids eat it. And food is such a highly personal and social component of our lives that It has to be amazing. It has to taste incredibly. It has to be vibrant and exciting for people. And so the technology is critically important, but without the food and the taste and what we're delivering on the other side, it's only one piece of a puzzle and it doesn't really complete the picture. And so I think what Kim was saying about technology being part of a larger picture is exactly how we think about this at Bowery as well.
0: Well, so, I mean, I was going to say, farming is like the original high-tech industry, right? I mean, literally, the march to civilization began with technological innovation farming. But in, the, say, the 90s and, and, and sort of the last part of the last century, farming technology developed a, a sort of bad reputation in some level. How do you reclaim a technology as
2: a force for good in farming? Yep, What you say is exactly right, which is farming is, you know, 10,000 plus years old, right? This is probably the oldest and the largest industry there is. And it was our original understanding, you know, 10,000 years ago that you could plow in a field and you could plant seeds. And that actually allowed us to start to establish civilizations and stop being hunters and gatherers. And it, we just continue to innovate from there. But there's one consistency for the last 10,000 years in agriculture, which is agriculture has always innovated around the desire to figure out how can we control for a set of externalities that we have no control over, right? We can't control the weather. You can't control how cold it is or how hot it is, how much it rains or how much it doesn't, the nutrients that are or are not in the soil. And so much or almost all of the agricultural innovation has been around how do we deal with those externalities that we can't control? And that went from very rudimentary tools to mechanized plows and tractors. And then in the 1950s, when we started to say, how do we get cheaper food at much larger quantities? That was when we started to look at chemicals, whether it was pesticides or fertilizers. And eventually we actually went to the genetics of the crops themselves. What's so exciting about what we're doing at Bowery is in essence we're completely flipping that equation on its head. And we have the capacity at Bowery to intimately control all of the externalities that help a crop grow and thrive and not only grow as healthy as it can, but taste as incredible as it can taste. And when you can control all of those externalities, you no longer need to rely on chemicals, you no longer need to change the genetics of crops necessarily, and you have the ability now to grow crops that actually you don't see in our day-to-day life. Because if you look at industrialized agriculture, we essentially have chosen crops and seeds to deal with three things. How do we transport these crops for thousands of miles and they show up and they look good? And how do they resist pests and drought on the field? And that really is the most important determinant factor in choosing what we grow those aren't variables that we have to worry about at Bowery. So we have the capacity to work with seed companies and find just these incredible varieties and flavors that actually remind you of what your grandmother's garden actually tasted like and the produce you got out of your grandmother's garden because we now at scale can grow crops without the concern of the external world that has really been plaguing and causing difficulty in agriculture for decades and and really thousands of years.
0: Really, really cool. Kim, you're a veteran of these builders and innovators summits, B&I. What have you learned this year? I know it's very different, you know, to do it virtually, but what have you learned from your client meetings this year and, and what makes you optimistic when it comes to the state of entrepreneurship?
1: You know, I have to say, I very much agree with what Irving, you just said. And, you know, you know, the saying necessity is the mother of invention. I think that really, really applies to entrepreneurship today. And, you know, 2020, was, you know, a profoundly difficult year for all of us to say the least, you know, whether that was COVID, public health challenges, unemployment, racial inequity, social injustice, international challenges. It's just, there are profound societal challenges that we're all dealing with, you know, and, and my sort of, I'm an optimistic person by nature. I just think that the primary driving force for innovation is a profound need. As Sheila and Irving have been talking about, and society has real need today and so that actually makes me optimistic for entrepreneurship so i think coming out of this very difficult period you know i have real faith in entrepreneurs and founders to sort of help solve these like, very profound challenges that we all face and so i'm optimistic for the future and i'm optimistic for entrepreneurship
0: well i'm, I'm more optimistic about entrepreneurship than i am about our government right now solving these problems Sheila, what are you most excited about regarding the future in your field in in the future of better drugs?
2: Yeah,
3: and I wanted to kind of build upon really some analogous thinking that Irving has been talking about in the farming area, because, you know, you're trying to reduce uncertainty and you're trying to have more control over the outcomes. And as you all know, drug development is littered with failures, right? I mean, when you look at the percentage of, of programs that actually make it into phase one, two, three, and then get approval, this huge attrition rate through the pipeline. And our whole goal has been how do we minimize or at least make that attrition rate lower and have more successes over time? And I think we have all these tools now which really are able us to predict better the outcomes from a benefit, from a clinical efficacy and benefit perspective, including which patients could be the most benefit responders from our therapies. So that's, you know, we're always trying to figure out what mechanisms can work. How do we predict and increase the probability of success, that we're going to be moving mechanisms and programs, whether they're large molecules, or, such as injections or small molecules, or cellular therapy or gene therapy, into the clinic, into these later stages of development, and really help patients and minimize those failed, larger trials. And also, how are you gonna really manage for the safety risk? Like, I think you're bringing up Irving, like we're also always trying to see, how do we make sure that these are safe therapies for patients, and how do we predict you know, who's going to have safety issues and how do we minimize that? And I think with the advent of artificial intelligence and the new algorithms that we're developing, large databases that we have access to where we can actually look at patient samples and interrogate our mechanisms before we go into the clinical trials, all of this hopefully will improve the probability of us to be able to deliver successful medicines for patients. And that's where we're all about, that unmet need how do we need to help patients because there is so much unmet need there in every disease area that I've been looking at, even the ones where we've had great successes. I remember I was interviewed once and, and someone said, how do you deal with all the failures in drug development? How does, how does that affect you? And I said, look at all the successes in drug development. I say it's crazy about the, basically innovation and all the new therapies that have come out in the last 10 years alone, these different disease series. And, you know, it's just astounding to me. So I'm very optimistic also, Kim, as you said, I, maybe I'm an optimist at heart, but I think we've done incredible amount of work already and we have a lot more to do. The human body is very complex, but we're up to the challenge.
0: Irving, I think you're also in the optimist camp. I I kind of detect from your tone today. So let's pile on to what Sheila said. What makes you optimistic about the future of sustainable food
2: and the opportunity there? I think you're hard pressed to find an entrepreneur who's not optimistic. I think it's probably table stakes for, for taking this journey. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think you have to be in a pretty strong optimist to be able to, to stomach the ups and downs of building anything. You know, to your question specifically, I, I am incredibly optimistic about what's ahead for farming and the sustainable food system in general. You know, specifically to, to our industry at Bowery, you know, I am incredibly excited about just what's ahead for indoor farming as a part of produce moving forward into a part of a more sustainable food system. We see a market that's $100 billion a year in the US and about a trillion dollars a year globally. And that's just for crops that we think are good candidates for indoor farming at Bowery. And so the opportunity really is enormous. And it, it's not enormous only in the US. It, it is a true global opportunity, particularly because over 75% of the food, fresh food that we eat in the US is, is grown here in the US where there are many, many countries where it's fractional and most of their food is coming from other countries and long distances. So the need for a better and more regionalized food system is is becoming more acute. And I think that's the second piece for me that drives a lot of optimism is, I think you're gonna start to see a strengthening in the regional food systems again, which is really important. And I think you're gonna start to see assurance that, in each of our regionalized areas, whether it's countries in other parts of the world or different parts of our country in the US, a stronger food system that is more self-reliant in that area, that practices are either regenerative or more sustainable in the way people are farming. And I think you're finding that people are figuring out how to work hand in hand with technology more effectively. And, And that could be precision agriculture, so farmers are using drip irrigation or or being more thoughtful about the inputs they're putting on. That's using satellite imagery and drone imagery to be more thoughtful about what's being applied and when. And I think as we are maturing quickly as a technology sector and that technology sector is meeting the agriculture sector, we are finding out how to work well hand in hand with one another. And that's a really important development for all of us as global citizens ultimately.
0: Excellent. Well, before we close, I'd love to get one piece of advice from each of you that you'd give to someone who's thinking of starting their own business. Sheila, how about you?
3: There's so many pieces of advice I could give. I guess I have three areas and I'm sorry, it's not just one, but the first is basically focused on yourself. And I think really believing in yourself and having that tenacity and resilience to go for the dream and stick with it because you'll have ups, you'll have downs but the low points only make the high points sweeter, but you have to really believe in yourself and have that tenaciousness. The second is really surrounding yourself with great people. It can be a very lonely journey, especially as a founder and an entrepreneur and a CEO of a company. So if you could find great mentors and supporters to surround yourself with, um, really at that you know, executive level, as well as your board, if you, if you have a board, as well as the people you work with in the company. I always like to say the people are our platform. And so it's so incredibly important who you surround yourself with. And the third is something I think that Howard Schultz brought up yesterday when we were talking about the journey of Starbucks and his personal journey. It's around really making sure you stay aligned with your values and you don't lose that authenticity. And for myself, the values of respect, collaboration, and a really core value is humility. And I really love that he brought up the importance of being humble. And I think that's so important for an entrepreneur if you're not humble, you'll miss the signals. You won't listen to your employees. You won't try to understand what's happening around you. And you may not make right decisions if you don't take all of that into account. So I really think humility is a really a core value for me. And I think it's important for really any entrepreneur.
2: Irving, how about you? I'm going to steal Sheila's playbook and give you a couple as well. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I think the first thing I would say is And it's hard to give entrepreneurial advice that doesn't come off as cliche now, so I fully acknowledge that. But I think doing things that you care about, and, and it sounds so simple, but that could be work on a problem you care about. That could be work on technology that you care about or work on a broader value that you care about as well. But this is a long journey. It's hard and it takes time. And if you don't have real personal investment in what you're building, it will eventually wear you down. The second thing I would say is the people are everything and in every company of all sizes, people are everything, but particularly when you're starting a company in the early days, the people you bring on board have an outsized impact on your ability to be successful. So both being thoughtful about who you bring onto your team, but also being self-reflective about what's important to your business, where you as a founder are strong and where there are gaps and making sure you get great people to fill those gaps in is really critical to success. And the last one I would say is, every entrepreneur should have a healthy balance of both optimism, but also skepticism. You know, I joked before, but you can't find an entrepreneur who's not optimistic because for, for one to jump off the cliff, you have to be optimistic that you're gonna land on the bottom uh, or, or start flying as they would say. But the other side is, you need to have an appropriate amount of skepticism as well. Whenever I I meet people who are starting businesses, I always say to them, if you can't tell me a hundred reasons why this isn't going to work, then you haven't thought hard enough about it. And you need to be willing to poke holes in your own ideas and also talk to people who may be contrarian or poke holes in your ideas as well, because that's really what makes you better. And that's what makes your company better. ultimately. Excellent.
0: Well, thank all of you, Kim, Irving, and Sheila for joining us today. It's always one of my favorite sessions of the year. But thanks for joining us today. And
1: thank, thank you, you so much for thank having you, us. Thanks both of you, Sheila and Irvin. Congrats again.
0: All thank right. You. And hopefully we'll get a chance next year to uh, do this while we're looking out over the Pacific Ocean and get an update on the businesses and how you're doing. But I'm optimistic about both of your businesses. So that concludes this episode of Exchange with Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, we hope you subscribe and Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And please tune in later in the week for our weekly markets update where leaders around the firm provide a quick take on the latest in markets. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, October 15th, in the year 2020. Thanks for listening.
4: All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part.